yes, there are negative behaviors associated with downsizing and living in a tiny home, but the positive benefits greatly outweigh the negative ones. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 92 with Maria Saxton. Maria is actually the first person to do academic research about the tiny house movement, and she decided to explore how the ecological footprints of tiny home downsizers change. And so now we actually have some, some science about how tiny houses can be a big environmental gain or just good for the environment when people downsize. We don't have to guess whether that is true anymore. And Maria is a really interesting guest. She's, she's rather thoughtful about this. And we dive into her research and, and kind of what this means, what further things are, are needing to be studied, and, you know, just what you need to know when you're downsizing to go tiny. If you're concerned with the environment and you want to reduce your uh, environmental footprint, you know, how tiny house living can help you do that. I hope you stick around. But first, I'd like to tell you about the sponsor for today's episode, Tiny House Decisions. Tiny House Decisions is the super helpful guidebook that I wrote five years ago to share all of the knowledge and decisions that I made to build my own tiny house, along with what I did right, what I did wrong, and how I would change things. The guidebook is now in its second edition. It's been completely rewritten and expanded to reflect how tiny houses are being built today. And it also includes several new tiny house stories from other tiny house dwellers. The guidebook has been expanded to include things like SIPs and metal framing and all the different kinds of insulations that are being used in tiny houses. And I seriously think this is the most helpful thing you can buy if you are thinking about living in a tiny house. If you go through the guidebook from start to finish, you will have a solid plan for all the systems and everything that's going to go into your tiny house. The second edition has been a long time in the making, and I'm really excited to share it with the world. To learn more, you can head over to thetinyhouse.net slash THD. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash THD. All right, I am here with Maria Saxton. Maria comes at tiny homes from the research side of things. She just received a PhD in environmental design and planning from Virginia Tech. Her research explored how the ecological footprints of tiny home downsizers change, showing how tiny homes are a holistic, sustainable housing solution. These results have been used by tiny home policy advocates in both the United States and abroad to help advance policy change. Currently, she's an independent consultant helping people develop tiny home communities and is mentoring a handful of students interested in researching tiny homes. She's also serving on the board of the Tiny Home Industry Association. Maria Saxton, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to chatting with you. Likewise. I'm curious, what got you interested in tiny homes in the first place? That is a very good question. So when I started school, when I started my undergrad back in 2012, I went to Virginia Tech and they had just finished a solar decathlon project. And if you're familiar with that, it's hosted by the U.S. Department of, of Energy. And 
schools across the nation and across the world compete and they build incredibly efficient small scale homes. And so Virginia Tech had just finished um, their 2010 version. They had actually won the the international competition. And, and when I was a student, they were doing lots of tours and, and really getting a lot of the undergraduate students involved. And so that was kind of my first, first taste of, of small scale living and, and understanding, you know, all of the benefits that, that come with living in such a small space and, and the innovative materials you can do and the different design features and, and all that kind of stuff. So that was kind of, the the project that really got me interested in the movement and from there i just kind of started exploring the movement you know reading books and going online and talking with different people and it was kind of like a domino effect after that wow so you just kind of saw them and got interested and then what made you were you already in the phd program kind of looking for something to study or is is are tiny homes kind of what inspired you to go and do this? A little bit of both. So when I was an undergrad, I did a research project with with a graduate chair of the Virginia Tech's School of Construction. And, and it was just a really rewarding experience. It wasn't about tiny homes, but it was about green home certification programs. Okay. Um, and I just loved the entire process of doing research, really enjoyed the work I did and and the results I got. And when I was a senior, I got an offer to stay as a PhD student. And my advisor at the time said, if you stay, we'll give you freedom to research whatever you want. And <laughs> immediately I was like, oh my gosh, well, this is a fantastic opportunity. I really want to learn more about the tiny home world. I want to provide a study to this tiny home world because I had seen that very little in the research sense had had existed at the time on on this movement. And so I was very compelled to contribute a study in that regard. Nice. So let's get into the study itself. What what is the subject of the research? Yeah, so my main research question was how do the ecological footprints of tiny home downsizers change? And so I had a handful of, of follow-up questions to this, you know, understanding how their specific behaviors change, understanding what about the tiny home um, could influence behavioral changes. And I really wanted to understand, okay, you see all of the literature on tiny homes, you see blogs, you see television shows, et cetera telling us that they promote a lower environmental impact, but this had never been quantified. And so I wanted to be able to measure this in some way and provide actual numerical data that the tiny home industry could use to promote how they are, in fact, an environmentally friendly form of housing. So I think I'm going to ask a basic question, but it's, it's a question that I have nonetheless. What is an ecological footprint? How is that defined? That that's yeah, that's a great question. So there are different ways to define it and it kind of kind of depends on who you're asking. Um for this specific study, 
I looked at the Global Footprint Network, who has has a very comprehensive ecological footprint tool. Okay. And so, um, so they they provide they they say that an ecological footprint is a metric that shows our demand imposed on the earth, and specifically, an ecological footprint refers to the amount of biologically productive area that's required by an individual, a population, or even an activity to accommodate for the resource consumption. So really, the point of calculating an ecological footprint is to determine if somebody's consumption is environmentally responsible. And to explain it a bit further, an ecological footprint is measured in global hectares, which you know, I wasn't even familiar with that that measurement when I first started looking into it. But essentially, one global hectare is equal to about the size of a soccer field. And it's equal to about two and a half acres to kind of put it into scale for people who aren't familiar with that that measurement. So if you if your ecological footprint is one global hectare, like what does that what does that mean? It means that your lifestyle requires about one soccer field's worth of biologically productive land to accommodate for your behaviors. Ah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it breaks it it breaks it down in in terms of like fishing grounds, forest, grazing land, it, all depending on what you eat, how you how you travel, what sorts of goods and services you use. And that kind of thing. So it, it breaks it down in terms of the land type, but it essentially is telling you how much space on the planet your lifestyle requires. Okay. So is there <laughs> is there like a number that is considered a responsible global hectare? <laughs> well, there's there's, you know, the national average, which is eight point four global hectares, but as you know, you could probably imagine the United States national average is not the most responsible. Ideally, you would have much closer to one global hectare, um, you know, minimal impact. Mm -hmm. But that is hard for many to achieve. So, so they typically look at between two and three global hectares to be what you would consider responsible. But it really, it really varies based on where you live. And what types of like services and infrastructure exist in in the country you reside in? So, let's let's jump into the findings since we're talking about <laughs> this these numbers. Um, it it sounds like you found that the you know the average footprint from prior housing to going to a tiny home drops from seven point oh one to three point eight seven. Yep. Yep. Yeah, you got it. Um, and both of those are are lower than the national average of eight point four, which is which is fantastic. And that decreased from seven global hectares, about seven global hectares, to about three point nine global hectares, was a decrease of about forty five percent. So almost half, which was pretty substantial. Yeah, that does seem substantial. And I, I I'm smiling because I'm thinking that these tiny house dwellers were probably already trying to live, you know, ecologically lighter 
which mm-hmm. maybe explains why their their footprint was already lower than the national average. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we really looked at those numbers and we're, we're trying to understand, okay, why, why is there this difference between the average previous footprint of seven global hectares and then the national average of 8.4 global hectares? I mean, it's not a huge difference, but it certainly is, is, you know, there is a difference there. And so it tells you that perhaps people who, who are looking to dine size to tiny homes already have some form of environmental consciousness already in their life, whether it's, you know, in their, their just general mindset or, or their day-to-day behaviors. In some way or another, they're already a bit more environmentally conscious than the average American. So one criticism I've heard of the tiny house movement from detractors, and I don't think they had any data to back this up. Nobody had any data, I guess, until you did this research, which is that, you know, tiny homes aren't the answer. They're not environmentally friendly because, you know, it's wasteful for individuals to build individual homes. People should be living in more dense housing or there's so many there are so many different ways to kind of attack the tiny house movement. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, based based on your research, how would you you know, how would you answer that criticism? Or let's go with, oh, people should be living in more dense housing. Right. I mean, I think it's really important to bring up those those types of criticisms because as we know, I mean, living in a tiny home is certainly not for everybody. Um, and in some ways, it can be less environmentally friendly. For instance, I looked at, you know, I created an inventory of behaviors that the people in my research study had experienced that changed after they lived in a tiny home. And not all of them were positive. Um, For instance, some of the individuals recycled less because they did not have the space in their home to to store recyclables, or they lived in a rural environment that didn't have curbside recycling. Um, So there definitely are downfalls like that that aren't, aren't across the board, but certainly individuals struggle with these types of things that do negatively impact their environmental footprint. I think if if you looked at the numbers of, you know, I, I looked at behaviors and and I compared, okay, what are the positive ones? What are the negative ones? And approximately the the positive environmental impact behaviors outweighed the negative ones by six to one. So I think that that tells you, yes, there are negative behaviors associated or that can be associated with downsizing and living in a tiny home, but the positive benefits greatly outweigh the negative ones. And if you're talking about, you know, a tiny home versus a micro apartment in New York City, there's definitely something to be said for um, being condensed. And, you know, if you live, live in an urban environment, likely you're going to be traveling less, commuting to work, you know, there, there are certainly positive benefits to that. It wasn't something that I researched in my study. I didn't necessarily compare, you know, a micro apartment to a tiny home, but um, I think it, it's certainly something that another research study could look into in a lot of detail. I think there's a lot of great things that we could learn looking at condensed housing versus these individual tiny home units. I like that. It's like tiny housing isn't isn't the panacea for environmentally, you know, becoming more environmentally sustainable. It's just one mm-hmm. 
potential option. Yeah, it's it's one avenue for people. It's it's certainly not the only one. Yeah, I just actually um, a, a family member emailed me a clipping from the Washington Post headline, Tiny House Living Can Be Big Time Wasteful. And it's kind of, <laughs> it's an article that's all about like, basically like, where are you going to store the stuff that you buy? You're going to throw right. out more stuff if you live tiny, um, which kind of, it just kind of made me chuckle because it, it ignores the, the decrease in consumption. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I read an article a few months ago now, um, but it was, I think it was some, titled something along the lines of tiny homes have a dark secret. And it, it was one of the points it was making, which wasn't measured, unfortunately, but it was saying that they, they didn't promote a lower impact because of things like that. Like people will buy, you know, storage units to, to keep, you know, family furniture or valuable possessions in because they can't keep it in their tiny home. Um, and other things like that. But if, I think if you step back and look at the big picture, you would definitely find, as my research did, that as a whole, I mean, they, it certainly does decrease environmental impacts. I mean, there there's always going to be exceptions to that rule, though, you know. That, that said, though, um, every individual in my study did experience a lower ecological footprint. So at least in, you know, in the scope of my study, there weren't many exceptions to that rule, which was promising as a researcher. But um, that's not to say that every single person in the world who downsizes will, will experience a 45 decrease <laughs> in, their, in their footprint. Right. So what, what are some of the... Um... What are some of the general trends that you you found? Because there are a lot of different components or a lot of different reductions and changes that go into that overall reduction. Right. Yeah, that, that's a good question. So to explain the ecological footprint a bit more, it's divided into five footprint components. And this is food, housing, transportation, goods, and services. And so the footprint calculator, specifically the one I used, will, will ask you a series of questions in each of these footprint components. And, and it certainly doesn't represent every single you know, element of one's life, but it provides a really good overview of things like your transportation behaviors. And what I found, found the most interesting about this research was that not only did housing behaviors change, but every other component changed for the better in terms of the environment. So as a whole, to provide a few examples, as a whole, people ate more environmentally friendly diets. So less meat, more local foods. They grew more of their own food. Uh, they purchased food with less plastic packaging. Um, and the transportation category, people drove less on a weekly basis. They use less public transportation. We looked at bus and train specifically. They also drove more fuel-efficient cars, and they flew less in an average year. On average, I think the decrease in flying was like six hours, like six hours in one year, which actually, if you look at somebody's environmental impact, flying is a huge huge contributor to it. So that that was actually pretty substantial. And then let's see, in terms of recycling, across the board, people recycled more. 
we looked at plastic and paper recycling. And then not surprisingly, across the board, people purchase substantially less in every category that we looked at. We looked at like housing, um, like housing furniture, uh, sporting goods, clothing, um, newspapers, books, all these different categories. So those are just a few examples of how when you look at the population as a whole, you know, they experience these changing behaviors that didn't just have to do with their housing. It influenced, you know, living in a smaller space, influenced their diet. Who would have thought? Yeah, absolutely. What do you see as, you know, do you have kind of the next piece of research that you want to do? Is there is there a follow-up <laughs> to this that you feel like needs to happen? Well, n- nothing that I personally will probably do um, just because I'm done with school. And, and I, I mean, I would love to stay in the research world, but I don't really know how to do that. <laughs> um, that said, though, I think that there's, there's a lot of follow-up of research studies that could be done to, to kind of step beyond what I did. So like we were talking about earlier, you could compare tiny homes with other small scale types of housing, like, like campers or micro apartments or things like that. There's definitely, I mean, it's a relatively unexplored field in terms of research. So I think there's a lot that could be done. Um, And something that I'm personally interested in doing that doesn't require necessarily a research study is just collecting data and serving the existing population. I really want to help the industry understand, you know, who who are currently living in tiny homes and who are interested in living in tiny homes. What are the general trends in this population? Things like age and income range and educational levels and, and all this kind of stuff. There hasn't been a very comprehensive analysis of who this population is. Right. And so based on your participants, you know, maybe you could share some of those who who are the people who who at least volunteered yeah. to be in your study. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I have let me bring up I have a handful of demographic information. So so the most popular age were millennial age between 25 and 34, and then what you might consider the baby boomer age between 55 and 64. Um, both of those were pretty evenly representative. representative. And, and then um, all of the other age ranges were represented, but to lesser degrees. Um, let's see, about half of the participants in my study were working full time at the time of the study. About 20% were working part-time and about 14% were retired. And then let's see, about 18% were considered others. So either they were on disability or some other explanation that meant that they didn't fall under those other categories. Something that was actually very surprising to me was that of the people who, who participated in the study, 77% of them were females which was really, I mean, I was surprised at how many females were, were represented versus males. I mean, it's only 23% males. Um, if you look at it in the research world, in general, if people are volunteering for a survey, 
females are more likely to volunteer, but it's like a 5% difference. It's not, it's nothing crazy. So I was certainly surprised at how, how um, many women (laughs) were, were involved in this study. Um, Let's see, there's anything else. The most common annual income, and this might, might be because a handful of them were working part-time or were retired. The most common annual income was between 20 and 30,000 a year, which is quite a bit lower than the national average. So that was also pretty interesting. Yeah. So, so just jumping back to the, the male versus female, um, the, it sounds like based on the averages from other studies that you can pretty conclusively say that more tiny home dwellers are women just based on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if, if you're familiar with the tiny life that Ryan Mitchell, Ryan yep. Mitchell did, he did a, a survey, I want to say it was back in 2013. And I don't have the numbers in front of me, but he definitely found that more women lived in tiny homes. I think it was like something like 55 to 45%. It, the difference wasn't as as much as what I found, but it there definitely there definitely was a difference that he found as well. Got it. So how did you go about conducting the research? Did you visit people in person and actually like somehow physically measure or is it based on surveys or how did you do it? Yeah, so it was based on surveys. I distributed it all online. Um as you probably know, the tiny home community is fairly active online. So I recruited a variety of ways. Um, actually, my su- most successful method was through Facebook. There's a handful of, of uh, tiny home groups on Facebook that are really active. And, and you know, I, I posted messages in the groups um, periodically. I think it was like every two weeks for about two months, I bug these people about this. Um, and they, uh, they were extremely willing to, to participate, which was fantastic. Another way I recruited online was I looked for blogs, blogs that fit my criteria of research. So, and I contacted them directly. And then also I wrote a handful of articles for the tiny home magazine. Andrew Odom, who's one of the editors, he was super helpful. He was very willing to help me recruit. And so that's an online editorial, um, which was distributed fairly widely. And that was another great way that I recruited people for this study. So it was kind of a a mixed bag approach. (laughs) Got it. So on the abstract, and you you talked about this a little bit earlier, but I wanted to to ask again. You mentioned that the the overall insights indicate that the positive environmental impacts outweighed the negative ones, and so it sounds like in some maybe subcategories the environmental footprint went went up as a result of going you know living in a tiny house. Is that would that be correct? Um, well, so no, not in terms of averages. So if every single component that I looked at, when you average the population, they were all lowered after downsizing to a tiny home, but there were specific individual behaviors that a handful of people, you know, shared with me that 
definitely would have would have uh, would have increased their environmental impact. So, like I shared earlier, the recycling issue came up a few times. Uh, another example of that were people eating out more often and not not cooking as much at home, and that was due to having a smaller kitchen and just not having the space to cook nor the space to store kitchenware or bulk foods. Okay. Um, another example was, uh, let's see, driving further. <laughs> People who had to move out to rural areas because they just couldn't find parking in suburban or urban settings, and they had, still had to work and commute and drive further on a daily basis. So there were a few you know, examples on the individual level that that is what that was referring to. Okay. What have been the impacts of the study on on policy and and you know cities or towns becoming more open to tiny houses? Have you heard of anything or worked with anyone? Yeah, so a handful of of policy advocates have reached out to me asking if they could use my findings to advocate for policy in their local town or city or state. And so I think probably in general as a whole in the US I probably shared some data with about 15 individuals who were advocating in in their local jurisdictions and then actually a group in Germany was interested in using this data to change policy for the entire country of Germany. I'm not entirely sure how uh, what happened with that. It's been a few months I need to touch base with them, but also up in uh, Canada, a group was trying to do the same thing. And so um, I put together an infographic for them because they wanted, you know, a, in a, a visually appealing way to share these findings with, with the council um, that they were advocating to. And so um, I think that that was a kind of powerful way to, to share these findings so that they didn't have to read a 400-page dissertation. Yeah, the the yeah. <laughs> the um the infographic is great. Oh, thanks. And uh I will I will admit to being a bad podcast host, I did not read the 400-page dissertation. <laughs> oh, please, I do not blame you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is I mean, I don't think many dissertations are interesting and this one probably is not an exception. <laughs> so, yeah, I think the infographic is definitely definitely a way just for people to quickly understand this research and and the like an overview of the findings it doesn't include everything but i think it includes the most important pieces nobody wants to to read that much about research <laughs> nice and and with your permission i'll uh i'll post the infographic on the show notes page for this episode oh go for it thank awesome. you awesome yeah so that'll be it'll actually be episode 92 so the show notes page wow. will be thetinyhouse.net slash 092. Sounds good. Yeah. So um, you mentioned that now you're working as a consultant to help people develop tiny home communities. Um, yes. I'm curious if there are any tiny home communities in the works that you can tell us about. <laughs> yes, I can. Um, so I am currently working on a project. It is located in Pennington Gap, Virginia, um, which for anyone who's familiar with the area, it's um, very rural Southwest Virginia, practically on the border of Kentucky. It's about 10 miles away from the border. 
Um, and so the town, it's actually a really interesting project because the town itself is interested in a tiny home community. And they want a community for short-term lodging, like recreational lodging. So not for long-term use. Um, they, they really want to increase the tourism in their town. They have amazing um, outdoor recreational facilities. They have great hiking, biking, ATV trails. And they just don't have much in the way of lodging. Um, they have a motel there that they just, I think, not not many people seem to visit. A lot of people seem to to kind of <laughs> drive down the mountain and spend the night in the adjacent town. So they want something that really brings people in overnight, and that's an innovative, exciting um, lodging facility. And so they they have a piece of property that's owned by the town that they want to develop for this purpose. And so I'm working with them to just propose a handful of conceptual designs and layouts for the property. And then I'm proposing a handful of management solutions, like how, how can they manage it? How can they attract investors, that kind of thing. And then I'm giving them some um, cost estimates so that they can share these with the investors and, and understand their rough return on investments in five to 10 years. Um, and then also just putting together a preliminary business plan that they'll be able to use as a blueprint moving forward. So it's been exciting. I think it's it's interesting to be working with a town that, you know, has this interest in tiny home communities like that we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have had this opportunity five years ago, even. So I think it's really promising. And there are probably a handful of other towns and cities who are interested in similar things, especially in rural areas. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that I like to ask all my guests is what are two or three tiny house resources that helped you along on this project? And that could be people or websites or books or really anything. Yeah. Wow. That's a good question. So, okay. So when I was trying to identify specific regions um, of people who might be interested in this work, I refer to the tiny house map, which I think is hosted by the tiny home builders uh, website. <laughs> so if you, if you Google tiny home maps, you'll, you'll find what I'm talking about, but it's a really great resource. Um, people will list themselves on a map of the world. Um, but specifically I was looking at the U S and they'll say if they're you know, a tiny home enthusiast or a dweller or a builder, or they live in a community and they'll, you can contact them directly or just learn a little bit more about them. And it really gives you a sense of, of the, the <laughs> range of interest in, in this industry across the U.S., which I found really exciting. Um, another thing, I think the tiny home magazine that I mentioned earlier is a really good resource. Um, they provide, I mean, they, they have really interesting stories every month in their issues. And they talk a lot about different, you know, products that you can use in a home and, and just the people who work for the magazine are great. So that's my shameless plug in for them. Um, another really good resource is uh, the Tiny Home Industry Association's website. They are constantly updating um, policy changes like 
like uh, cities and towns who have adopted Appendix Q and the IRC. Updates like that, they're constantly posting stories about it, even on their Facebook page. So if you want like real-time, up-to-date news, I think that they are a really fantastic resource. Yeah, that's awesome. They do have a very comprehensive list of tiny home communities. Right. Yeah, and exactly. And then like if you if you're moving to like Montana or something and you want to know the current state of policy and for Montana, you go to the website, you go to the tab that includes these resources and you go, I think it even has it like state by state and you go to Montana and you see any relevant news stories to yep. to their policy. So it's fantastic. Yeah. Well, I will definitely link to to all these resources. Those are some really, really excellent suggestions. Great. Sounds good. Well, Maria Saxton, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much to Maria Saxton for being a guest on the show. You can find the show notes, including links to Maria's paper and to her website at thetinyhouse.net slash 092. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 092. And if you've listened this far, then you must be a fan. Welcome to the first show of 2020. I'm so excited you're here, and we are cruising toward the two-year anniversary of the Tiny House Lifestyle podcast. I can't believe we've made it this far, and I couldn't have done it without you. So thank you so much for listening. I hope you subscribe and you, you stay tuned. I really appreciate it. Well, that's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.